Welcome to the week in sports cars on this little Marshall Pro podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. That sounded vaguely, kind of, sort of, a little bit, maybe professional. Graham Goodwin, I don't know, but I do know that we do this each week. We do it together, and we do it with the joy and love for sports cars that fills our hearts. Before we get into a deep, packed list of questions across our categories of WC, ACO, European Le Mans Series, Asian Le Mans Series, something we refer to as Weck Aslamelm's ACO, I believe, uh, IMSA, we then have General and Fun. Let's find out how you were doing play our weekly game of where the hell is Graham Goodwin and uh, then have you select which category well, um, we open with. Uh, it's a, well, it's uh, to say it's breezy. We double say it's a foul day here in the, in the UK. I'm pleased to say. So been, uh, been home now for around a week and doing a little bit of self isolation post my uh, adventures in the Gulf. Uh, but uh, delighted to spend some time at home and catch up with, for lost time with a variety of things on the to-do list. Um, other than that, all good. Husky's well. Uh, did well after his um, eating the poison berries episode last week. And thank you for the uh, the best wishes for him. He was looking a bit, um, how could we put this, down at heel. And he's got four of those heels. Uh, so it's even more down at heel than most of us do. Uh, but uh, he's there uh, at the moment upside down on the rug in the living room and waiting for someone to go and tickle his belly. Uh, I've tried that myself. It didn't work for me. But, um, yeah, I think we'll um, we'll crack on. And let's... Um, Let's keep a regular pattern. Let's start with Weck Aslam's Elms and Aco. I further approve and give a triple thumbs up to that call. <laughs> Why? Well, yes, we do have the Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring coming up here, not this weekend, but next. So that is on the horizon. But indeed, lots happening in your world of Weck Aslam, Elms, and Aco. Why? Well, there's a little entry list revealed. And. Within that entry list, Graham, uh, yep. let's see how would we how would we f- characterize the sixty two entries listed? Uh, is that just the first batch you would say uh, of information of who might want to participate in the race, or did you get the feeling that hmm maybe maybe not? Uh, no, I think the answer is that's about all there was. Now, this, I think, MP, is a good sign that we, we talked about this for a while. And it's a little bit of, how can you put it, a bit of a false dawn when we've seen some of these large full-season entries emerging for the LMS, for uh, for WEC, for uh, the Michelin Le Mans Cup, for the Asian Le Mans Series. But I think the reality is 62 is about all they got this time. There might be a, one or two more. But evidenced by the fact that we now know that the um, – aided, of course, by the fact that uh, Le Mans will be a little later this year, now in uh, back in the end of August. But the uh, the reserve list, because there has not been a reserve list issued, uh, will reopen um, for a couple of weeks from the 12th of this month. And I can tell you that I've already fielded a couple of calls from teams asking whether or not I think it would be a good idea for them to – uh, apply for uh, a place on the entry list, and I think the answer is yes, go for it. Because if uh, last year's uh, adventures were anything to go by, there's every prospect that there might be further dramas. I can't tell you honestly where those dramas might come, 
Um, but uh, there might well be the opportunity for someone that's not currently named on that list of 62. And it's a good list, by the way, the 62. Um uh, might not make it to the grid on August 21st, 22nd. So I think the answer here is this is absolutely the sign that the self-evident financial crisis that f- has followed on from the COVID uh, pandemic crisis is beginning to bite. Why am I saying that when we've got 62 cars? Well, I can tell you for starters, there are six LMP2 cars on the full season list for the European Le Mans series that are not listed uh, in that entry. And I can tell you that my uh, firm understanding is at least four of those cars did not enter for a variety of reasons. So I think what we've got is people pulling together as best they can a full season um, of racing, but not necessarily having either the facility, the money, or indeed the inclination in another year where there might well not be a full crowd for the Le Mans 24 hours um, to commit the very substantial slice of euro that are going to be required for that. And, you know, I know there's a number of questions, MP, about what we've got on that list. I think probably we crack on and answer some of those. Totally agree. Interesting of the couple of interesting things on the Le Mans list. One certainly piqued a lot of our listeners' interests, mm. and that was... Risi Competizione, speaking of 62 entries, 62 being the number they've traditionally used for many, many years in GT racing. And they're going to Le Mans and not GT racing. So uh, Robert Pialli, uh, Trevor Gagola, Daniel Summersgill, Hrishi Despond, let's see, whom else? Uh, Richard Cooper. Uh, Will James, Ricky Zagata, all of you have Reese-related questions. Uh, Hey, why is this American GT team rocking up in LMP2? And there are a couple other shades to the questions here we'll get to about some other things related to that. But what do you know? I can share a little bit about what I know because I reached out and asked the team, but uh, I didn't get a lot of answers. You you go with that first. I'll tell you the bits that I hope will join some of the dots here. Far away. Okay. I'm just doing some quick fingering. Oh, hold on. Uh, As an adult show. No, uh, family <laughs> show. Uh, let's see. Something along the lines of uh, it appears to be an association between Risi Competizione and Ryan Cullen. Yep. And uh, they are awaiting further details from the team, uh, according to Mr. Risi. So... That's so I all I could get, and I should just couch that with they didn't want to say more. Right. So I think the answer here is uh, anybody joining a thick black line between this entry and anything approaching a Ferrari LMH, uh, I think just back off from that, certainly for a little wee while yet. Yeah, it's way too early to be making any kind of assumptions on that front. I would not be remotely surprised if uh, we saw some familiar faces from Jota involved uh, at the engineering side of this entry. Um, I believe Mr. Cullen's car is one of, I think, eight chassis that now reside uh, in or around the Jota Sport facility. A uh, couple of those are significant cars from the past that will, you know, for instance, the, the car that finished second place overall at Le Mans with Jackie Chan DC Racing. Uh, that one, I think, is is now effectively their museum piece. It's a significant piece of history. Uh, but they have, I believe, 
eight chassis available one of which i believe is the car owned by um well the the partners of the Cullen family i think if we put it that way so it's the car that raced last year uh, at le mans for those Ryan's, who don't know graham tell them about the Cullen family and ryan cullen right so ryan uh silver rank driver has been around for a little wee while, raced with United Autosports, raced with this Algarve, it was a G-Drive Algarve Pro, a last-minute entry last year for the Le Mans 24 Hours, very last-minute entry for Le Mans 24 Hours. Didn't have the best of luck, I'm afraid, um, but that car made its way from uh, the... Uh, did, it go? did it go United through to Dragon Speed through to Algarve Pro, I think? Um, and I believe that car might now well be with uh, the Jota organization. So what do I think? I think this is an opportunity to get the car on the grid. I think the link with Rizzi is a good strategic ball to have got them over the line. Whether or not they would have needed that strategic move for the potential for this being just 62 entries for the 62 places is a moot point. Uh, but the fact that we've also got Oliver Jarvis listed with it means that that is a car that you've got to take seriously. Also, by the way, worth mentioning that Oliver Jarvis, another driver that's driven Jota in the uh, recent past with Jack Chantizzi racing operation. So might the Rizzi Competizione outfits and their customers uh, be a recipient of an LMH at some point in the future? They might. Do I think this has got anything at all to do with that? Not one thing is a straight and honest answer. I think this is a mechanism for getting a LMP2 car onto the grid uh, in, I would hope, a very pretty red livery and with a significantly talented uh, driver squad. So that's what I think we've got. Um, it was one of the surprises on that list and a very nice surprise at that. And if that means that we see some of the smiling faces from Rizzi Competizione at Le Mans uh, in August, that'll be fine by me. While we move into some of the other aspects of this, might be worth uh, unplugging and replugging something because you're starting to get a little bit choppy towards the end there. Or maybe it's just the venom in your heart coming through. I hope that's better. It is. And no, we're not editing this stuff out. We're just keeping it because you know what? We're not (laughs) trying to pretend like we're super, super uh, professional. Uh, Graham Goodwin, let's see. You mentioned the Ferrari LMH angle and Mm -hmm. Reese should also, for those who weren't aware, remind folks that Reese was indeed uh, before a well, well well-known championship winning, just super successful GT entrant. Oh, there were a number of prototypes bearing his name. Yes. And and beautiful prototypes bearing. And And the grid. Of course. Yes. The the, the grid for the grid that for people that don't know it, that was back in WSC days. And grid, G R I D stands for Giuseppe Risi in Dawson. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) A fine fine motor racing vehicle. Uh so the concept of Risi being a a long standing prototype person. Now having, you know, great, fantastic decades-long racing association with Ferrari being a Ferrari dealer in Houston, all these things would make sense potentially for uh, the fine man to maybe somehow have an association with Ferrari's return to prototype racing. Would just suggest or 
inject the fact that it's been a little while, Graham, since mm-hmm. Ferrari played any kind of serious role in helping Mr. Reese get to motor races while using cars bearing the Prancing Horse logo. It's been a long time since Ferrari actually said, okay, and we're going to support you beyond making drivers available and or maybe a little bit of technical support. So just think that might be something for you to expound upon a little bit because it's great Ferrari's going LMH. Just don't think that that has any kind of and come with us uh, Giuseppe Risi and Risi Competizione as any kind of natural attachment because he's had to find his own sponsors, find paying drivers, LMP2, Ryan Cullen, ding, 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 to uh, do a lot of what they've done for a number of years. Uh, indeed, and I think the, the straight and honest answer is it's it's a worthy addition to a 25-car LMP2 grid, but I think that's as much as we really need to say about that. As for the significance beyond that, I think the answer is there is little or none. There we go. All right, let me just browse what else if there's anything in here that uh, we might pick up on that we didn't ah i think we're good all right we're going to move on to garage 56 entry question Mm. from at zach 23 who i don't recall from i don't remember zach 23 yeah so he asks what good are notebooks has he got has he got a membership well i don't know uh we'll bill you zach so yes uh First question is free, but uh, we need to get you signed up for a subscription for the full year uh, for any further questions. Kidding aside, it says, great to see Garage 56, except 62 cars, and that it's uh, Frederick Sose's SRT41 again. Graham, do you have any insight on why we couldn't or didn't do that program for recent years uh, where there was no Garage 56 effort at all. So, yeah, uh, the number's off, but I guess it's not a bad thing uh, since we have okay. more than 56. We haven't really <laughs> had a fi- Garage 56 thing for a little bit, and we're going to again, but it's not the first time we've had good old Frederick involved. So Indeed. So- let's let's go, go back with the background. So why is it called Garage 56 for those uh, that are kind of recent additions to the vastly growing sports car racing brotherhood and sisterhood? The answer is because we used to have 55 garages and they built another one. Uh, so it was the 56th car that was entered and that was the right was reserved by the ACO um, that they could appoint a car with an innovative idea behind it and you know amongst the cars that we've seen uh, the ini- the initial nissan delta wing uh, appeared under that premise um but the one we, we, we if you like harking back to here was indeed frederick sose it was the last time we had a garage 56 car uh which was an adapted um morgan um oak racing if you like uh lmp2 car for frederick and uh, for those who don't know fred sose uh, French businessman who uh, suffered uh, an appalling viral infection that led to him having to have both his arms and both his legs amputated. Uh, he's an extraordinary individual in very, very many ways. And Fred, so say, with a couple of able-bodied drivers, including Christophe Tonso, um, they worked on that car to have the car adapted so that he could both get in and out. He did so uh, by the extraordinary low-tech means, by the way, of hanging over a bar 
uh, over the car in the garage and effectively just dropping into the car, um, be lowered into the car. Um, but they finished the race, uh, an extraordinary feat, did not disgrace himself in any way, shape or form, and then announced that he would be starting up this La Filière, this uh, academy for other drivers with physical impairments. And the idea behind this is to show that the technology is available to allow um, people who are not you know, uh, who do have kind of physical impairments to perform in the sport at a very high level. We've seen it not just with Frederick, but of course with Alex Zanardi and get well soon, Alex, we're thinking of you. Um, but uh, so we started that academy and there were three guys taken on by that academy, including one guy I've met numerous times. He was one of our, um, he was one of our competitors uh, back in the day in the Asian Le Mans series, uh, ex uh, MotoGP driver, um, Aoki-san, whose first name escapes me for the moment, but who was badly injured uh, in a motorcycle accident back in 1998 and is paralyzed from the waist down. So what we've got at the moment is there's uh, uh, Aoki-san, we have Nigel Bailey, uh, and there's going to be a third driver named for the race. Two of the original Academy signings will be in this adapted Orica 07, a significantly bigger... Uh, challenge this time around, of course, because it's a closed-top car. Uh, they'll be doing the first two European Le Mans series races and the Le Mans 24 hours. So we will see just exactly how that goes, but I wish them well. Why haven't we had um, a car in the meantime? I think the answer is the... I, I think we've had a couple of cracks at it we had the green gt concept the original hydrogen car that's evolved into the h24 uh technology program that uh, will be racing this year by the way in the michelin Le Mans cup so that did uh lead to eventually something that uh, emerged from the, the hydrogen electric prototype there was another car and i'm trying to think i think was this wr do you remember this one mp which was going to be fueled by Am I right? Methane created from the human waste collected at the race. Poop this car, poop car. Poop car. Yeah, I believe um, so. And there was also a, a proposal. In fact, the last um, proposal of a Panos-backed car, which was a car with a replaceable battery pack. Uh, that was another proposal that did, did not make it to the grid. Part of the problem, I think, uh, has been here, and we've discussed this on Weekend Sports Cars uh, quite a while ago, though, is the leading times and the budgets for doing something truly, uh, truly innovative. It just simply doesn't match up to a a year's leading, does it? It's it, you know for doing something at the level of step that technology now requires. You're either talking major factory budgets, or you're talking um, a smaller uh, uh, concern, but that requires, frankly, multiple years to attract the backing to actually get these things over the line. So I think it's a great idea, but the reality is it, it's needed another another look. We're now getting to the stage where, of course, hybrid drive is going to be pretty much regular. It's going to be interesting to see if perhaps in 2022 we get something that looks a bit more like a hydrogen electric racer before those cars arrive uh, as a class in their own right with factory backing, we believe, in 2024. Also worth adding in, Graham, that when Garage 56 came to life, we were in a, 
somewhat interesting phase, right? We mm-hmm. had Audi and Peugeot fighting against one another at the top of LMP1 with their turbo diesels. Peugeot would obviously be heading out. Toyota would be rushed in uh, to fill the void here. But this is at a point where the the great, too brief, but the great uh, hybrid era of LMP1 was in its infancy, had not taken off and become this raging monster of Porsche versus Audi versus Toyota. And obviously we know about uh, Nissan trying to play there a little bit, but that all would become epic and amazing. And we would see some vastly different concepts here in what type of hybrid to use, which mm-hmm. end of the car it's being deployed through multiple forms of uh, energy recovery and deployment with the Porsche and whatnot, radical engine choice for the Porsche, only one diesel uh, among the three. We got to a point to where, well, let's just say Garage 56 represented something important because we were in a little bit of a phase where cool, uh, Peugeot turbo diesel versus Audi turbo diesel, great. We've gotten about as much out of the diesel angle as we can. There's not a lot else that we would consider to be innovative. So a Garage 56, let's open it up. There was some cool innovation that happened. Not long after, though, admittedly, LMP1 hybrid, I would say, filled that void. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If you wanted to see some crazy ideas, cool stuff, zillions of dollars being spent by manufacturers to blow your mind, that was being done. And it was in the top class. So while Garage 56 remained viable, there weren't many. I know we have a question about the the Nissan uh, Zero Emissions On Demand Ziad here uh, somewhere down the list. Oh, did we? Yeah, but there just wasn't much to fill the void, I would say, that was needed because P1 Hybrid was delivering like you wouldn't believe, I do wonder something that we're seeing more of, Graham, by major sanctioning bodies, and it's not super public yet, or it's not something that they're promoting a lot out of, but I am aware of multiple sanctioning bodies making much greater efforts to do outreach in the absence of manufacturers rushing in to do whether it's just standard racing programs or new and interesting things, the the process that normally works for how, for decades on end is, hey, we've got a series, we have a formula, uh, come one, come all, and if manufacturers like it, they respond and they do something. Sometimes when you have a project like Garage 56, which hasn't had much uptake, it does strike me as something that if the ACO and the WC are really passionate about this, if they still retain that passion for it to be what it is, they'd be doing more outreach. But at the same time, they're trying to get folks to sign up for LMH. So there's mm-hmm. a bit of a conflict. So maybe they're not pushing, hey, manufacturer X, come spend a bunch of money on this one-off effort at Le Mans. Uh, but then it's not really viable to keep racing that in the rest of the calendar. Uh, we've got GT questions coming up about what it's going to be here in the next couple of years. So uh, if they really want it to be a thing, I think they need to put in a lot of effort to do so. But when you're launching one new prototype formula and you've got some sort of change on the horizon with GT racing, I think those are some arguments, built-in arguments against Garage 56 maybe ever really flourishing. Uh, maybe, I don't know, are we going to see the end of it here? Um, I, I think I, I think the answer 
my belief is we might see one more. And I think if we do, I think that will be a hydrogen car as a demonstration. What are you building? For- you say that like you know. So what's in the garage? <laughs> well, I, th- I think the answer is I would be surprised if we didn't see something with hydrogen technology uh, in 2023, perhaps, before um, the class as a whole is launched in 2024. Um, remember, that is, again, the centenary year. There'll be all sorts of fun and games, I'm sure. There's all sorts of hints being dropped by the great and the good about surprises to come. I know you and I know some of what is to come. I believe we know what some of it is to come. I believe I know some of what's going to be coming in 2024 at the moment, too. Um, but it, it, I don't disagree with you. Um, I think there's one other interesting part of this, MP, which is, again, another thing we've discussed numerous times on Twisk, is um, at what point do we see any kind of electrification into the GT class? Now, um, or what other tech might go into the GT class, is that perhaps where we might see Garage 56 uh, emerging at some point? Might we see um, Garage 56 being used for, effectively, a GT3 Pro car at some point to see how that uh, manages over the full distance at the Le Mans 24 hours? I do think it's a smart thing for the... Um, the, the the powers that be at the ACO to just reserve the right to demonstrate whatever it is they feel is going to be relevant moving forward. It's another storyline. I, I don't disagree that the the moments for that that next grand leap of technology are probably some way way into the future right now. Um, but I just still do see the the role for this. I, I can tell you, I give you a hint that there was one other project potentially around for Garage 56, not widely known at all, um, but uh, you know, I've been in, uh, in the circle of trust on a project um, that has been around for quite some time that has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the technology of the car and everything to do with the structure of the business that surrounds it. And I do know that that's been discussed at length with the ACO. And I do know that that, that that did not get a blanket no from the ACO. So there's all sorts of ways in which you might, might still see some form of innovation around it. For now, though, I'll say this. All the very best of luck to everybody involved with La Filière, so say, um, at Le Mans this coming year. They've had a long time to wait to get uh, this car on track and into competition, and I look forward to seeing them uh, when we get uh, racing at the European Le Mans Series in just a few weeks' time. Amen, Brother Graham. Uh, let's see. Daniel Summersgill. Hey, first time. I love wow. it. Over the weekend, Scuderia Cameron Glickenhaus posted that the delayed Le Mans event will enable them to complete the build of a third 007 hypercar. Says, does the delayed announcement of the reserve list allow the team to potentially bring that car in when we get to August? Mm-hmm. Um, I had a long chat with uh, with uh, Jim Glickenhaus, uh, what feels like a long while ago now, a variety of reasons, some of which will become uh, obvious in the coming weeks and months. 
I've uh, had a busy few days um, and I've not had a chance to write that up. But uh, Jim telling me a lot of things, um, some of which will remain private, some of which we can use to answer some of the questions we've got about uh, Glickenhaus. Certainly he's keen to see what he can do about attracting a customer for a third car. It's clear in my um, regard that that would be something that would be welcomed by uh, the FIWEC. What do I expect to see from Glickenhaus this season? I'm not expecting to see Glickenhaus at the two flyaway races at the end of the year. Uh, I do think the move of the Portimao uh, race from being the season opener to later in the year is a good thing, and we will see likely the Glickenhaus is adding a fourth race in the WEC uh, to their program. Uh, might we see a third car? We might. Has he got someone waiting in the wings? If he has, he's not told me who it is, but, uh, well, why would he? Uh, but is there the tantalizing possibility of the appearance of a another hypercar on that entry list? I think it's possible rather than probable, I think is, is what it comes down to. Um, certainly, kind of cracking on from this, uh, MP, because I know there's a, there's a number of questions about the testing that's been done uh, with the car. That testing appeared to be pretty successful. Uh, Jim gave me an idea of what he believed one of the lap times to be. I'm not sure uh, he'd interpreted the the numbers that he'd been given in exactly the same way that I did. I think we're talking about a car that has some significant uh, tuning for things like the gearbox uh, programming, etc., and the anti-lag system, for instance, to, to be put in place. But that car did not disgrace itself, put in a substantial number of laps at pace at Monza. Uh, everybody was, uh, I think, well pleased with progress. There were some challenges because of travel restrictions. It meant, for instance, that I believe uh, some of the Bosch technicians were not able to uh, travel and therefore were doing their feedback uh, and their updates from distance. The same with Xtrack, who provide the gearbox. Uh, we did have Team Yoast personnel uh, at the track, and it also saw the opportunity for uh, additional uh, drivers, including Pipo Durrani, to get his first opportunity to drive the car and um, due to catch up with Pipo uh, when he's available the next, uh, next few days to get his initial uh, feedback on it. But Jim, I can tell you, was very pleased indeed uh, with the way things were going. I think the answer from people who've seen the car, heard the car, has been pretty positive. And all in all... Um, I've said it before, and Jim Jim knows this. Uh, I think Jim is just the very best sort of motorsport nutter. Um, he's uh, I, he's one of my favourite people uh, in terms of his attitude and his outlook to this, which is, I have the means. I'm choosing to spend my means on doing something awesome. Uh, isn't that awesome? And would you like to share in the awesomeness of it? And uh, the answer is yes, I would. Uh, I do like the opportunity for someone who's a bit of an outlier. I think uh, there's a phrase, the challenger brands is certainly that. Um, and he's doing good things with cars that are the opposite of being boring. And I think for that, uh, he deserves a massive thumbs up from everybody that cares about motorsport being anything other than predictable. Watch this space, by the way, for the potential for all sorts of possible um how can we put this possible tweaks around the way that that hypercar class might emerge as things move forward um but i think he's he was right to make the decision he did to miss the initial portimao date to do the 
30-hour uh, test after which the car would have its multi-year homologation finalised. He now doesn't have that concern. So my my guess would be we will see both cars at Spa. Whether or not we see both at the test, I think, is another point because it sits quite close to uh, the 30-hour the test that they've got planned. Uh, I think we'll see both cars at all four European races now, and that should be celebrated by anybody that likes to see joyfully the joyfully different, and the Glickenhaus is certainly that. Ain't that the truth? Ruth. Uh, Jeffrey, Jeff Roy Bear. Ooh. Pardon me, Jeff. Uh, from a fellow Jeff, although mine is spelled with a J, not a G. And it's Jefferson, not Jeff Roy. It says, when do you think... The deadline to start working on a hypercar project and be ready in time for Le Mans 2023 might be. Says, I mean, uh, last announcement for that year should arrive soon, right? Timeline. Uh, okay. Well, if we're talking hypercar, that presumably means including LMDH. Um, and the answer there is they've got a bit of time yet. It's still some little while away. We've got, uh, well, it's a year and three quarters before we get into 2023. And I think we would expect that anybody declaring to be in the hypercar class would be declaring for a full season. Otherwise, they're probably not going to Le Mans, is the straight answer. Um, I think they'll just bide their time, MP. I wouldn't be remotely surprised if we heard some more um, in the coming months weeks and months uh, either stateside or in Europe. We've got opportunities when the FIWC gets underway. We've got opportunities for high-profile announcements at the Le Mans 24 hours in August. Remember, that will still be almost two years before the cars would race for the first time at Le Mans uh, if it's an LMDH car for 2023. Um, although, of course, there's a potential under ACO regulations for LMDH to race in 22, should somebody come forward with that, but I'm not expecting that to happen. Uh, I, I take your point. Um, but I don't think anybody's in a hurry right now. I think what everybody's looking for is to just make their own decisions in their own time, make their plans behind closed doors, um, and kind of push forward with the the way in which they just build a level of expectation, or indeed just come out as Ferrari did. Uh, and it wasn't quite a total surprise, but it is fair to say that that was an announcement, uh, albeit in just an outline, that uh, gave them exactly what they were looking for, which is a tsunami of interest that went around the planet. Uh, not every brand will have that level of uh, ability uh, to to stimulate that level of interest, but I, I think it's fair to say, Jeff Roy, we are expecting multiple additional announcements before we get to 2023. Would that be your assumption and your assertion, MP? Yes. Uh, the LMDH side, I'm really looking forward to. I think that's going to be pretty darn cool with all the folks yep. that I expect to... Well, if the number if the number ends up being what I think it's going to be, uh, yep. yes, it could be an odd number. I think on the last show I said, I thought it was going to be an even number. Uh, okay. if everything happens, I think it might even grow by one. And I think we, could we be at seven LMDH entrance by mm -hmm. the time 2023 rolls around? I think it's possible. 
more than po- I wouldn't mention it if I didn't think it was possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we need to come up with lmdhmanufacturertracker.com. And uh, <laughs> it's maybe it's like the world debt clock or I don't know what, but uh, the countdown to Armageddon clock. Uh, we need to do that because I think it's going to be a count up clock. And yeah, we'll just on a weekly basis maybe change something to either raise or lower our expected odds or the percentage likelihood of uh, this manufacturer that. But feeling pretty positive right about now and knowing that we only have three announced. But yeah, I think we could double that and maybe even add one more on top. Um, and that's just where we're at today here in March of 2021. Uh, let's see, where do we go next for you, Graham Goodwin? We go to uh, Stephen Gate, curious about lap times for the Glickenhaus test at Monza. Damien Peachman, any word on how the test is going? I okay. know that you already got into some of that, but uh, the speed, the pace is something that I think intrigues people naturally wanting to know, okay, we have a benchmark for lmp1 hybrid non-hybrid coming off of last season um any thoughts on where we might be at least with this initial test on the seg 007 right so i think as i said the in the previous answer uh, i think there was there was some times that were relayed back to the us to jim the time he gave me didn't quite kind of add up in terms of where i believe the car was i think it's where it should be right now there is clearly some time still to come uh, from that car, um, I, I'm sniffing around something I think happened at that test of a very positive nature. Uh, I don't really want to give it away at this point because I think there's actually a substantial story to come. Sub one minute uh, lap. So, <laughs> uh, if only. But um, I don't think there's anything to be concerned about at this point in terms of lap times. Uh, I would have expected a car with all functions um, operational uh, to be somewhere around a good LMP2 lap time. That's what we expect from the hypercars, is it not? But what we don't know is we don't know what weight the car was running. We have no clue about that. We don't know exactly uh, what um, the powertrain was actually producing uh, in terms of power output, whether or not the car was fully dialed up or not. We don't know a range of things. We don't actually know either the status of the development for the Michelin tyres, and that, I think, is going to be a significant part of this. We've got, effectively, two different um, specs of tyre that will be provided for hypercar, one of which will be for the cars with four-wheel drive, uh, and you can put into that... um, uh, in, in that category, the Totas, the Peugeots for next year, we presume, the Ferrari for 2023. Um, and then you've got the rear-wheel drive-only uh, tyres, which will be for the Glickenhaus, and you would expect for the LMDHs as well that will put their hybrid drive down through the rear axle only. And I think that's another aspect of this, where getting a little too involved in lap times at this point might miss the point of what they're trying to achieve here, which is they're not only trying to develop the car, they're also trying to make progress along the lines towards that all-important balance of performance. And that will be a pretty hefty uh, task, certainly in the early races for this season. Um, I, I, I would worry less about the performance aspects of the car, worry a bit more about where the relative performance might be of a two-wheel drive versus a four-wheel drive uh, hypercar over a full stint and a full race distance. There we go. 
Uh, let's see. Going to look through what else we might have here. Daniel Summers Gill says it was suggested on a weekly motorsports show that there could be zero GT cars at Le Mans by 2025. <laughs> How likely okay. do you think this is? He says, hashtag me personally. I think this is unlikely, as I can't imagine 62 prototypes at Le Mans. Um, okay. yeah. I'll go into that one. So let's have a look at the, the entry list we just got yesterday, 62 cars. And, the, and if that's where we stay with 62 cars, you've got a good yardstick, haven't you? What that would mean is that somehow we would have to find an extra 32 prototypes to fill that grid. Now, you know, okay, if well, you add in... mommy, mommy prototypes <laughs> and daddy prototypes sometimes love each other, love each other and yes. make baby prototypes, so it's possible. <laughs> well, well, let's think about this in slightly broader terms, although I do enjoy the, uh, yeah, do enjoy the joke, which is this. Looking for 32 prototypes, it's not going to be as simple as replacing all those GT cars because some of those LMP2 teams will move on and do LMDH instead. So you're looking for... 32 additional prototypes um, and, and bringing in new teams, etc., etc. Uh, that means you're looking for, well, if, if we suggest that maybe, let's say, five additional LMDH manufacturers, and what the hell, let's say a couple of LMH manufacturers as well, so that's seven, that's 14 factory cars if we get seven more manufacturers committing, okay? That's 14. That's not even halfway towards where you'd need to be so okay let's let's add in um maybe in a, an ideal world maybe another 10 customer cars across the board so that's 24 and you're still not where you need to be and still not taking into account the fact that there's going to be double counting because some of those p2 cars more of those p2 cars would likely be in that number as well so you're still even with a high water mark for those cars, some way short of having a full prototype grid. What's to come that might affect that? Well, yes, LMDH, the hydrogen cars, which, you know, I, I think we're talking about a handful of cars there. We're not talking here about a class that's going to have 10 cars in it. We're talking about a handful of cars operating at around the same um, level and, and competing for the overall wins in 2024, 2025. Take into account then the next part of this, which is whether or not you go down the road of saying this will be the uh, outrun of GTE or by that stage that we've got some form of class eligible at Le Mans for GT3 cars, Pro or Pro-Am. Uh, the reality is G forgetting GTE Pro even, 24 GTE AM cars will race at the Le Mans 24 hours this year according to the um, uh, according to the uh, the entry list we got yesterday. That's a lot of teams, drivers, budgets, etc., that would have to disappear for there not to be a need for, or, 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 or rather a demand for that class. I don't see it. It's possible, but it's, I don't see it. It's just utterly stupid to suggest because there, there's just an undercurrent here that's being uh, willfully ignored, and that is, yes, Porsche is going to be making an LMDH. Great. Yep. Could they sell some customer cars? Sure. Yep. Ferrari going to be doing an LMH. Could they do some customer cars? Of course. Yep. We expect that to be something that is a significant factor in their decision to join the class, build the cars. Where and how do the significant manufacturers we know of that compete 
in the WC, ELMS, uh, Asian Le Mans Series, etc. 24 Hours of Le Mans, IMSA as well. Where do these significant mm-hmm. manufacturers, I don't know if I want to say make money, but offset their costs with their manufacturer programs? It's by selling customer-based GT cars. A quick glance, and my numbers could be off, I think between GTE Pro and GTE AM on this year's entry list, there mm-hmm. are 11 Porsches, and I believe I counted 14 Ferraris. Obviously, okay. there are some Aston Martins in there as well. But we cannot forget that the financial composition of the manufacturers who embrace GT racing, by and large, not every single one of them, but the vast majority are invested in making customer vehicles available. So even if all the brands that currently play in professional GT racing, factory-based GT racing, abandon it, all for prototypes here within the next couple of years, you mm-hmm. still have a vast, in IMSA, GT Daytona class, uh, in WEC and, and whatnot, GTE AM, this is where these brands sell lots and lots and lots of cars at a pretty penny, which helps offset their overall motorsports endeavors, or at least offset it as much as they can. To think that these brands would say, eh, we're going to get out of GT racing, <laughs> it's just silly. I, I, I agree. I think the 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 point here is, the customer aspect of LMDH is going to become important to these brands, but the customer aspect of GT racing, if we presume, and I think it's a fair presumption that any future in the near future beyond GTE is going to be based around GT3, is going to be vitally important to those very same customer racing uh, bodies. And we would hope that the you know rule makers have learned the lesson to allow Brands that maybe didn't make it into the prototype field are given an opportunity to get a stepping stone into that family because that's the best way of displaying your wares is to have them on the inside looking out rather than the outside looking in. Um, is it, you, you can anticipate, can't you, that whilst we, we, we are likely to have a – the change – start again, Graham. The change I think that's coming is a deeper top class. I think that's what I'm looking, flailing around looking for the right way to express. It may well be that the number of prototypes we see on the grid is not dramatically larger than what we've got now. But I think we're looking probably this year, next year, at the high watermark for P2. After that, when we get into LMDH, the likelihood is that some of the better funded LMP2 teams will start to look towards, uh, particularly LMDH, I think it's fair to say here, MP, because that's going to be the cheaper option uh, for their principal program because they're going to have the opportunity to compete for overall wins. By the by, and it's not a question that's been asked, but I'll bung it in there anyway, I think there's every prospect by the time we get through to 2024, 2025, that we might well see uh, continental series, Europe and possibly Asia, um, with... A rule that says um, if you're looking to actually, uh, you know, um, encourage uh, factory entries into LMDH from 
non-traditional marketplaces, wouldn't it be a good thing if you had an LMDH class for private cars only in Continental Series? So might we see a top class with privateer LMDHs in the European Le Mans Series, the Asian Le Mans Series? I think there's every chance we might. Um, do I know there's a plan to do that? I absolutely don't. It's just, again, going down the realms of common sense. So no, I don't expect GT cars to be not required on Voyage uh, for the Le Mans 24 hours, uh, 2025 or at any point thereafter as things currently stand. 10-4. Let me look here. We're in a bit of overtime, if you want to call it that, for Weckasm Elms Echo. So any more you want to pick and choose before we move to wherever else you tell us we're going? Let's pick one up from Ewan, Sasa Race Smoking Puppy 841. Uh, how long, he says, will it be into the Le Mans race week before we get used to seeing the Herbeth team running a Ferrari? That was a surprise, Ewan, absolutely. Uh, and, but I think it was a surprise to them. They were certainly talking to me on the podium uh, at Abu Dhabi, having won the championship in the Asia Le Mans series, about continuing with, with Porsche. My guess is it's one of two things. It's either there was no car available to them or no car available to them at what they believe was being an affordable uh, price. Uh, let's have a quick look. Yusuf C51, another name I don't recall. Do you guys think the ACO will create some sort of entirely new type of GT car category to replace GTE in the future? If yes, when do you think it will debut? I don't think that's going to be required. I suspect we're going to see some form of um, some form of classification around the new for 2022 new regulations around GT3. Because why wouldn't you? We know already that a number of uh, manufacturers are already uh, producing cars for that. You and I are both aware as well, MP, that there's others that haven't yet uh, shown their hand that will certainly be introducing new cars to GT3 in the future. One of the things that at the moment is a bit of a problem, if you like, is there's not a lot of new in GT3. The last new GT3 car to be launched, I think I'm right, was the McLaren 720S GT3. We've had Evo cars since then, but no new platform. That will now wait for 2022 with the first one that we know about and that is out there publicly being the BMW M4 uh, GT3. Yes, that one. Uh, the one with the, how can we put this, challenging looks. Um, that, uh, that's, that's the, that's, I think I the love the looks to heck with do, anybody yeah. who doesn't, but, I, <laughs> but Hey, I love oddball things. So that's, but explains that, it. it GT3 is where it's going to be at if uh, if we're going to be going down the GT route, and I think we will. The The key question is when. Uh, looking to see if there's anything else there. And I do seem to recall uh, our, our fine questionnaire has indeed sent a couple things in before. So, Yusuf, thank you uh, okay. for coming back to us. Yes. Um, uh, the dude... So at a beach somewhere, ACO decides to get teams grooving to the beat and hire you two as paddock DJs for Le Mans. What kind of jams do you pump out? Well, there's one for the youth, isn't there? I think I might be quite disappointing. I'm a bit of an old punk at heart, I'll be honest with you. So I think there's going to be a, a little bit of the, um, uh, who would it be, the clash, the damned. Um, all in all, not really very, very, very kind of um, acceptable messages, I think, for the high quality of racing. But uh, I think it would be something along smash it up. There we go. Uh, yeah, I fear that we'd be doing a bad job because it'd probably be a lot of music that, except for some of maybe the elder 
team owners and crew members uh it all be kind of grandma grandma and grandpa's music so yeah it'd probably be a lots of Amer- old american soul more stacks and motown from the mid to late 60s early 70s some rare groove type stuff so yeah in there and so our answers lead to a summation of we'd be fired after the very first <laughs> event because everyone would be going uh thanks for the trip back to uh steve mcqueen uh music days but yeah uh, this isn't a vintage racing series so you two go away uh let's see i'm gonna take a quick look as well and see if there's anything here that jumps out um there let me try and find the one uh about the ziod who I... it's, 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 I've never heard of him before, but Daniel Summerskill. Last week you discussed the various Nissan contraptions of recent years. What became of the Garage 56 entered Ziod RC that raced in 2014? Um, not a lot. I suspect it's probably in the Nissan Museum somewhere, but this was the car that uh, did a full electric lap in, was it practice or qualifying? Uh, but then I'm afraid... Uh, I think it was itself. early in the uh, race. I think it was it was one of those things early in the race, like the first half hour or something. No, no, like it, that. It, no it it died in the early in the race, uh, but it did the EV lap in either practice or qualifying session. That much oh, was okay. definite. It was the the reality here. It was I mean the, the little engine was extraordinary. The pictures of the engine designer, little literally with the engine cradled in his arms. Three cylinder uh, Ray Malik Limited manufactured motor. Yep, but unfortunately, Ray Malik Limited did not have, I'm afraid, the required time to get the reliability out of that package. Shame, um, but uh, no, I think not enough time and not quite enough budget to make that success. Where is it? I genuinely have no idea, but uh, Nissan do have a bit of a record for keeping their contraptions. So my guess is it's somewhere under wraps in Japan. Plugged in. I bet yes. somewhere. Yeah. There's an extension cord <laughs> sticking out the back somewhere. So hopefully, yeah, there we go. Uh, tell me, are we done? We moving? What are we doing? We're moving. Let's move on and let's do some of the IMSA. What? Let's do that. Yeah. John Schultz, uh, at Johnny Trotz. Once again, it seems only one of the two, uh, Le Mans IMSA auto entries have been picked up, although not the only IMSA cars, of course, with the three GTLM cars uh, listed, the two Corvettes, CAR, of course, making its Le Mans debut uh, this year, and the WeatherTech Racing Porsche. Um, but only one of the two auto entries, auto, auto invitations, rather, has been picked up. Does the current system really make sense? It seems like the IMSA drivers who'd like to go to Le Mans might do so anyway, while handing the entries to teams might give them a business opportunity. So we, we have got PR1 Mattison um, will be there with Patrick Kelly uh, coming f- through with the Jim Truman Award, correct? I think so, yes. And then, But we've not got Ryan Hardwick. Uh, listed who did have the other uh, auto invitation for being the best placed non-professional ranked driver in gtd last season i've no idea what happened with that one but it's a fair point uh it does that system need another look mp i would say let's just write this one off as covid weird times budget limitations uh do we still really want to commit to something where we're having to do travel plus international travel what's what would the quarantine situation be like or not be like 
I think by the time folks had to commit, while we could look ahead and believe that many of the limitations and restrictions we currently have will be gone by then, I think any wise person might realize that by the time they had to submit their uh, we want to be there, um, yes, paperwork, uh, I don't know if that was time enough to feel fully confident to say, yep, we're going in, it's going to be all good. So just think, let's revisit next year. would suggest this might not be such an issue or a topic next year. I think that might be right. And the other thing, of course, with LMDH coming along in 2023, I think there might be a brand new day um, for that. Uh, they are back to ALMS days where what a joy it was to see some of the real cream of North American racing coming over and winning at uh, the Le Mans 24 hours with, with gay abandon, as it were. Um, Dustin Marlowe says, if it was already 2022, would the Catherine Legg and Christina Nielsen Harpoint EBM Porsche 911 be an entry in GTD Pro? Some of us still struggle to understand the difference between future, between current GTD and future GTD Pro. So can we use this as an example for a bit of clarification, MP? I do not believe it would because if we're talking competitive potential, it's a pro-am driver lineup, and I would not expect it to be one that would prosper in a class that's being created to give manufacturers uh, a new home using GT3 machinery, knowing that at least on our side of the pond, uh, GTE-based vehicles, uh, we don't have a lot of them anymore. Um, I don't know if that entry is one I would say would be ripe for being upgraded to GTD Pro and same GT3 car, but just, uh, in theory, an all-pro lineup. There's mm-hmm. nothing limiting, though, Dustin. A team saying, hi, we want to go race in GTD Pro and we aren't bringing a full pro lineup. Again, there's nothing stopping them, but there's no concessions that will be made. So I would look to some of the other teams that are are maybe more on the verge of pro-ness. Could a Paul Miller go and do that with uh, Brian Sellers leading the charge? And, you know, Madison Snow is pretty darn good. Um, I don't know if he's 100% there in terms of pace of a full pro but man he he isn't far or someone else if they wanted to put it uh you know put someone else a, a full pro in that car full time could some of the other teams a faf motorsports they look like they're pretty darn close um you know just in terms of driver skill there's a lot there that you might think uh, is pretty darn cool and could get there could be competitive mm-hmm. That's where I'm putting my head, and that's no disrespect to Christina Nielsen. Uh, She's obviously a multiple champion in GTD and an extremely capable AM, but I don't know of many who would be looking to hire her or fund her in a pro-level class. And so that's why I'd say that entry doesn't jump out. Uh, The sister entry at Team Hardpoint EBM one with Earl Bamber where you go, well, that's the pro's pro. His team owner slash teammate, Rob Ferriel, relatively early in his driver education curve, certainly an amateur. If Rob wanted to go play there, they could. If Earl wanted to, they could. But 
you would have to believe that Earl would be uh, doing a full season with a pro driver instead of Rob because I think they would get, you know, they wouldn't be a smart thing to do. So just think of this as the new place for manufacturers to participate in IMSA. All of them, barring Corvette, have a turnkey GT3 car ready to go. We know that they will be converting their C8Rs to Mm -hmm. play in GT3, so that's awesome. Um, We expect BMW to be there. We expect some form of Porsche involvement with an entry of some sort. Again, I don't know with who. Uh, You could probably lump in most of the manufacturers involved. Uh, Lamborghini, I think. We might not be silly Mm -hmm. to think they'd be there with some sort of pro-pro lineup. I don't know if Lexus is going to be doing that yet. Uh, I think they could, but maybe when they introduce their next model. But that's where I would put the uh, put the expectations, Dustin. And then you can also say, yeah, it'd be really cool for uh, some of the teams that are more on the, the GT true GTD level to try and step up. I don't want to see them convert out of GTD into GTD Pro. But uh, adding a car, I I would love to see that. So we have growth compared to uh, one class shrinking a little bit um, or the growth in a new class coming at the expense of another. Um, I think there'd be a lot of number crunching of driver data going on as people decide just exactly where they are. That's going to be an interesting part of the the background on this journey towards GTD Pro, isn't it? Uh, let's have a quick look. Kevin Perez, uh, Frederico, AMP, do you think EMS's track records will break with the LMDH era or realistically will only Daytona, will Daytona be the only track that will have a chance? It's a great, great question, Kev. Don't have an answer yet, obviously. Where the answer lies, though, uh, when it comes to LMDH is weight to power. And... Mm -hmm. We know that they're quoting, or I shouldn't say quoting, we know that they're looking to do a, a limited uh, 680 peak horsepower delivery combination between the internal combustion engine and the kinetic energy recovery system. So that would certainly be an increase uh, to where we are right now. It, where are we now exactly? Of course, nobody says 550, 575. Could it be 600 horsepower? Possibly. What would this represent in terms of a change? Well, so there's an extra 80 horsepower. Cool. We assume that on the engine side, depending on who we're talking about, which brand, 50 horsepower bump, 70 horsepower bump, who knows? But the 2023 motors, internal combustion engines, will certainly need to deliver more horsepower. So that's great. We know that the hybrids, when it becomes a hybrid, the hybridization comes from this spec Kurs unit that is meant to contribute 40 horsepower. Cool. By and large, what are we talking about difference from today? Let's say an extra 100 horsepower uh, from where we are right now. Great. Is that 40 from the Kurs unit full-time? No, of course not. We know that's going to be deployed and so there will be points where there is not necessarily all power available, all 680 horses available at every single nanosecond. Well, then we just have to find out what the weight penalty is going to be. How much is this curse system going to weigh? 
And that's where we're going to get the answer in terms of lap records being broken. Mm -hmm. We think we're going to see higher top speeds. We think we're going to see a lot of things. But what we don't know is, (laughs) does this 40 horsepower contribution to the approximate 100 horsepower bump actually negate those extra 60 ponies from the internal combustion engine if not the additional 40 from the unit itself we don't know so in the magical horsepower to weight ratio conversation if we find out that this curs unit's going to add a hundred pounds uh or more which wouldn't be a total shock um that's where i'm not willing to say oh yeah lap records will fall if you told me we were talking about the new internal combustion engines would be pumping out 680 and then the curves would add 40 on top of that I'd, I'd feel more comfortable right now not so much yeah i think the other the other uh, ingredient to add here is just exactly what will michelin bring to the party uh, for 2023 but so uh, you would expect they're going to be looking for the potential for headlines and that's another area that, uh, that there's there's real potential for it well okay. there, there's one other sub aspect to that too graham and that mm-hmm. is so the car is going to be heavier without a doubt yep. uh and we know with again projected minimum weights going up considerably they're thinking 100 150 pounds uh yep. is coming to the car so that's more mass for sure to start stop and corner uh you then have stint length what does this mean usually when vehicles go up in weight and velocity you tend not to get softer tires because those things then get punished even more. Uh, if we were to take today's tire, uh, bolting that onto an LMDH, boy, uh, I mean, it could be fun to watch. They're not going to last a full stint for sure. Uh, you're going to have lots of oversteer, understeer, slides and spins and all kinds of stuff. So just saying typical reaction when you just make a vehicle heavier and say and it's going to also accelerate harder, uh, break harder and later corner faster potentially or have more mass to manage while cornering uh, that tends to result in tires that are a little bit harder that don't get destroyed and worn out prematurely so that could be another thing to consider in the i don't know if we're gonna be breaking track records right off the bat by any means so just a couple things to keep in mind there's a couple more questions kicking around here uh, around the kind of GTD, GT3 side of things. Luke Filipponi says, um, made relevant this question with SRO North America starting last weekend. He's a fan of IMSA's move to GT Pro. Given the situation, hashtag me personally, is it, it is the best move they could make right now? A lot of potential for good turnout, he says. However, SRO America has struggled with their GT3 car count in the last few years, particularly in their old pro category. We had three pro cars across, uh, sorry, four pro cars across three teams entered for last week's races at Sonoma. It's the worry the same thing might happen in IMSA next season. Is this a North America GT3-related problem? Is it more something to do with the SRO package? Thanks for what us guys do and all the best to us. What say you, MP? Is Is it the same, same, or is it different, different? That's certainly the concern, Luke, about this announcement of GTD Pro. So just saying things we know to be true. Corvette will be there, two cars. BMW will be there. We expect expect that to be two cars. 
would we have a Ferrari Reese type thing? Very possibly and potentially. Don't know how many races, but we'll see. Uh, would Cooper McNeil and that program continue on the pro level, knowing that he's been in GTD and decided he's you know a little bit bored having done GTD for so long? Could he want to remain in GTD Pro or stay in GTD? Stay at a pro level in GT racing. I apologize. Words not good out of mouth. <laughs> Again, the question here is numbers, Luke. It's been announced. GT Le Mans really is no longer tenable. Get that. So you try and react to the market. Say, cool, we're going to put together a pro class. And all of you that make GT3 cars, well, now manufacturers who make them come and race them as factories. Great. And privateers, you're welcome as well. But we just don't know what that number is going to be so at sebring not this weekend but next there will be five gtlms for them factory one independent with cooper mcneil porsche is that number going to be eight to ten when we come back to sebring next year or start the year off at daytona if we're eight seven eight or more i'd be pretty happy with that if you think about the peak of GTLM in recent years, it's been about nine, right? Usually four uh, factory effort, four two-car effort. So that's eight plus a Reese privateerish type thing or something similar. So it's not a big number increase, obviously, if we go from five to eight or nine, but at least it represents something that has sustainability, You've already mentioned, Graham, hey, there's a GT3 formula update update coming and whatnot. So, again, we'll have to see how this plays out. But I look at GTLM as I think many of us did. IMSA did, obviously, and say, this thing's dying. There's no future in it. Let's change now. For what they're changing to, Luke, I foresee GT3 remaining super viable for quite some time. So that alone, I think, would lead manufacturers and some privateers to say, cool, we can either go buy a new car, make new cars, update, Evo, whatever it is, we can join in here with the rightful belief it's going to be safe for uh, many, many years. On the SRO side, they've just gone in a very different direction. I would say they appear to be more am friendly in how they do things so i think for those am drivers who aren't really wanting to do big crazy endurance races and you know 50 cars on the grid at you know the biggest events type deal there's more of a club feel to what sro is doing here in america discuss this ad nauseum on the show graham so we won't dive into all of it again but They've decided they are just about their paddock. They're not trying to be popular. They're not trying to, um, you know, they're not trying to compete against NASCAR, IndyCar, IMSA, NHRA, or anything else. They're just trying to serve their paddock, serve the manufacturers and sponsors that are joining in. And it's more of a private club feel than to its days prior to SRO, you know, having half of a stake and just even any uh, ownership of it before that I mean, it's always been very paddock centric compared mm-hmm. to global you know global centric but even so 
it was treated when it was world challenge as a challenger brand, as a rival mm-hmm. to other racing series in the marketplace. They've stopped doing that. And so I think as a result, there's less interest, less knowledge for uh, folks in terms of what they might want to get into and might want to be a part of. Just promotionally, IMSA between the two is a much higher profile. So it doesn't surprise me, Luke, that you get more drivers, more teams, more whatever going to the place that they're more familiar with and see more often. So you know, what SRO does that it, that is very positive is they do a lot of customization in terms of their classes. They have a lot of classes. And while there might not be a ton of cars in all of them, boy, they make it pretty easy for a lot of people to come and use what they have or what they want. IMSA, on the other hand, you know, and, and we see this in a lot of other sports car series, it's pretty strict. It's either It either is or it isn't. Uh, no, we're not going to create an offshoot of a class where we're going to have seven cars uh, just because y'all want to do it. Uh, so a little bit more customer-centric. Let's play and do the thing that you want to do. And even since it's not really made for big, competitive in the marketplace type uh, motor racing and trying to beat and defeat our rivals uh, those who are there tend to enjoy it so while you might not see crazy numbers in some of the classes i didn't hear a lot of complaints from people coming out of last weekend at one of my home tracks Uh, indeed a couple more questions on the general gt3 run of things and oddly enough tom firth says um uh, on not dramatically different from the kind of sort of run what you brung type point we seem to have a couple of bronze focused gt3 run what you brung series in the us now with gt america launching at sonoma last weekend and gt celebration also being formed are imsa likely to are likely going to join in with their own bronze focused gt championship using perhaps the older cars or will they leave it to the others i think i know the answer to that one I would love to sit in on the meeting <laughs> at uh, one NASCAR tower or whatever it's whatever the name of their headquarters is in uh, Daytona Beach right across uh, from Daytona International Speedway. I'd love to sit in on the meeting, Tom, where someone from IMSA pitches the idea of going to a sixth WeatherTech Championship <laughs> class. Uh, and then you would hear the sound of glass breaking as that person was thrown through the window, hopefully to, you know, some sort of bouncy castle below to uh, break their fall. But I am unaware of there being enough bronze rated drivers wanting, needing, you name it, their own class or place to play in IMSA. I would say GT celebration, for example, is awesome. Uh, established by a bunch of great folks with super veterans of sports car racing. And it's meant to be what it sounds like. Eh, we're not doing, we're not working with the ACO and paying them for an auto invite to whatever. Like, look, if you got a GT3 car, you got something that falls in, you know, the kind of cool GT related range, come on out. We're, you know, we love this stuff. Well, let's go do a thing and race and have fun. But, yeah, we're not getting caught up in all this other not just pure racing fun, more gentleman, gentlewoman centric than anything. And I'm using the word centric a lot this episode. Um, <laughs> I would say that with 
the Michelin Pilot Challenge Series being a training category. It's certainly a place where, air quote, bronzes are meant to become more valuable pieces of metal, hopefully, and then step up into IMSA. Obviously, we have bronzes competing in GT Daytona and uh, LMP3. But yeah, I think IMSA's good in the fact that they have multiple places for those who are newest to the sport, that bronze level, either newest or least developed to find a home. So creating a, a sixth WeatherTech championship category or a dedicated series, um, you know, support series for bronzes, uh, boy, I think that would be a hard one to sell. Okay, we've got uh, just a couple more on IMSA. The follow one around the GT3 uh, subject gtd subject comes from andrew backer hi andrew um where is the push for gtd pro having an engineered technical pace gap with gtd am coming from for hashtag me personally says all the benefits come from having a single pace as we see with sro gt3 classes and a combined point system like we see in the wec between lmp1 and lmp2 bigger field of cars running the same pace means more battles on track reduces the pressure to have a large field of all pro cars to avoid looking empty he says, what do you say? Someone must be asking, he says, for pace separation. Who and why? Don't know on the who and why. I do know they're talking about it, obviously. They've said they are, and I'm hoping to do some sort of catch-up soon on, hey, where are you at? I'm with you on this, Andrew. We could artificially separate GTD Pro from GTD through technical means, I wonder, though, if exactly what you refer to, hey, the, in theory, these are the proiest of pro teams and manufacturers running cars at the pro level with full pro lineups. We believe in most instances, therefore, that will be the separator in terms of lap time and whatnot, but uh, nothing that's going to be crazy different. Keep in mind that in GTD, obviously, you have pros. And so we've seen what those cars can do at their maximum. So if it's just a case of GTD Pro now means that those cars are lapping at maximum capability at all times, that would definitely help uh, the two classes to stand out when non-pros are in the GTD cars. What I'm curious about, and it's just ignorance, you've asked a question, I don't have an answer. I have a suspicion, though, is that manufacturers... The actual, yes, we are going to compete as a factory in GTD Pro. I would assume are the ones saying, well, we want something to look different and special. <laughs> we don't want to be spending a lot of money and really not being unique on track compared to the non-factory GTD cars. So that's my guess. That's also and always countered with, but no manufacturer wants to spend any more money than they have to. So if you're going to separate... Uh, if you are going to do separation by making G GTD Pro faster, well, that's going to come at some heightened cost uh, from the consumables on the vehicle to lifespan for some of the parts and pieces and our rebuild, rebuild interviews. Or it'll come from slowing down the GTD class, the non-pro cars, which might be a little bit weird uh, because then you would break free from what is the most common global BOP formula being used so for GT3 cars obviously so I don't know which direction they'd go 
one goes up, one goes down. If they leave things alone and just let driver skill and whatnot uh, be the separator. But I do have a feeling, Andrew, manufacturers are going to want something to stand out a little bit more uh, if they're going to invest in GTD Pro. So hope to have a story and proper answer for you here before too long. Uh, right, got. Uh, I think that's as much as I can find in IMSA. Unless there's anything there you want to draw out. How long? How long we got before the dinner bell, uh, the dinner gong sounds? Well, we're at about an hour twenty. So, uh, okay. yeah, Damien Peachman, you asked what engine will, how to use as its LMDH engine. Bad on you, Damien. I've written about this. We've spoken about this. I tell you, I'm so offended. Uh, <laughs> kidding aside, uh, as I understand it, Audi will be using uh, its DTM motor. A class one car, uh, yep. class one engine, yep. yep. Uh, okay, let's have a look then. Should we uh, move on and do a little bit of her general? We shall do whatever you tell us we're doing because you're the man who tells us what we're doing. So, right. so we've got two to start with, which are, oddly enough, carrying on on the general subject of SRO. Uh, one comes from Darusla, a guy in a grumpy bear suit. The next one from Jared Roberts. Um, uh, at Reginald Von Doom. <laughs> um, uh, Guy with grumpy bear suit says, can someone please explain the differences in the SRO series that run at Sonoma? There's GT World Challenge America, which is not GT America, which despite having GT4 cars is not GT4 America. All three series are barely in double figures at the entry list. Consolidate, please. And Jared says, when is SRO going to get its act together, stop making it so hard to find out what the PWC series name, class names are? So many names and classifications. I'm a dedicated sports car fan. I still can't figure it out. Right, strap yourselves in. I'll run through it once, and I will never say these words again. GT World Challenge America is GT3 only. Two races a weekend, 90 minutes each, two drivers, classes about driver ranking, pro-pro, pro-am, am-am. GT America is GT2, although they didn't have any this time around. GT3 and GT4. Bronze drivers, two races a weekend, 40 minutes each. One driver classes are by car category, GT2, GT3, GT4. GT4 America, that's another series. GT4, two races a weekend, 60 minutes each, two drivers. Classes are by driver ranking, Pro-Am, Silver and Am. And then there is the TC uh, America class. That comes, by the way, from a series of tweets from PR uh, Kelly Brule. Thank you for that, Kelly, because I have to tell you, I was equally confused. So the answer here is, I'm afraid if I'm going to point the finger anywhere, it's got to be at SRO for not putting out clear enough uh, guidance and PR to at least two of our listeners, at least one of our contributors, who I have to say were confused or not interested enough to spend the time going through uh, the variety of resources that are available to get that all straight before it needed to be straightened out for us. Um, so, yes, uh, I, too, get to the stage where if you keep calling things different things year in, year out, you're going to confuse people and therefore should spend the time and the energy and the resource to make sure that those um, confusions are ironed out at the earliest possible uh, opportunity. So a little bit of a failure there. And we've got a learning curve that's extended beyond the start of the season. That ain't good. What's there? What can you find, MP? I need to make an admission here. I stopped trying to understand a couple <laughs> years ago. I'm just being honest. Yeah, I'm full, yeah. full transparency. Um, I stopped trying because between the sp- 
sprint format, single driver, sprint X, two drivers, but 15 minutes longer or whatever than a sprint race. And then I think that getting expanded a little bit, uh, this class, that class, breaking TCR into there's effectively a, a, a separate Volkswagen Audi group class kind of sort of based on their transmission, uh, which was not allowing the cars to compete at a similar level to the other TCR products and split into touring car A, B, and C. And again, just after a while, I truly said, I know I can do it. I am smart enough to be able to track all the classes and what they are. What's single driver? What's two driver? What's this? I just said, I I don't want to. And so I'm not trying to be mean or whatever, but I just, I figure that if, it is something that is confusing enough to lead PR reps to have to try and explain the series before they do anything else related to publicly relating the series and their clients to other people. There's maybe, yes, it's the 31, it's the Baskin Robbins 31 flavors of ice cream. And you go, well, that's awesome. (laughs) You've now just catered to, in theory, just about every type of ice cream a person would want. Now, that's great when you just want ice cream and you can walk in and see, wow, I have a lot of choices and, okay, i got to narrow it down and maybe this is a little bit problematic because, geez, I like about 15 different flavors, so what am I going to have? But it's not a huge burden. When you apply that to a motor racing series and say, hey, 31 flavors of everything and you need to try and grasp all the little subtle nuances and differences and or sell people on it, oh, no, it's great. You can kind of do anything you want. I guess there's value to that if you're an entrant, but for those trying to track it in comparison to everything else, Graham, hey, mm-hmm. how many classes and what's going on in the WC? Yeah, you can kind of pick that up. Asian Le Mans series been a little bit wonky at times, right? Kind of uh, allowing mm-hmm. a lot of different things that maybe weren't elsewhere, but... Um, this is America's version of the Nurburgring 24-hour race of, oh, there's nine different flavors of GT Turing car, maybe kind of, and then there's seven classes of this, and then you go, I don't know. Who won the race? A car? Awesome. Yay! I couldn't possibly tell you what all the different machinations are, though. We do that here uh, in the series formerly known as World Challenge. Well, well maybe I could, if I could suggest. So we've got GT World Challenge America, which, by the way, is the Fanatec GT World Challenge America powered by AWS, if I'm, if I'm correct. But uh, yeah, I'll mention that once at the start of a story, never again. What about instead of GT America, what if we said gt america challenge america rather than gt world challenge america because that's obviously it's the lower yeah okay and then maybe gt4 america challenge america which would get across the kind of more national aspect does that help or is that hindering or am i making things worse 
only if the James Brown song Coming to America is played. Oh. While, yes. And for those who might have watched the long-anticipated Coming to America 2 that uh, appeared on Amazon Prime late last week, Okay. Oh, my wife and I, uh, we were so Is it worth disappointed. It? Really? Oh, oh, dear. All the fond memories you might have from the original, uh, which I guess, sharing my age, I saw in the movie theater when it came out. Um, oh, You've been to a movie theater? No. Yeah, it was a long time ago, though. Oh, oh no. But yes, maybe, maybe this is what we do. Maybe we just yep. replace all the GT America. We just... It's coming to America, coming yes. to America one, coming to America two and three and four. That's the new SRO class structure. Okay. Right. And we'll oh, just run the number up to whatever number, however many we need. Uh, there's no Sprint X, not, I know Sprint X has gone away, but there, we're not just, look, uh, based on the number, you just attach that to what the hell it is. So we, we might get up to coming to America 14 uh, with the SRO uh, deal, but I think that might be easier to understand. Is it is it too soon for me to admit that I thought Sprint X was some kind of gum? Uh, no. What, what um, about making America GT4 great? No, too early, too soon, too soon. Oh boy, we're uh, oh, we're, we're you're you're the triggering agent on this episode, Graham Goodwin. Oh, uh, all right. Where else do we go? Uh, Joshua Johnson. If um, if Manufacturer X came to you two and asked which route to go. LMH or LMDH, which would you recommend? Uh, the, my answer to that one is how much money have you got to spend? If the answer is an unlimited amount of money, then the answer is LMH. Um, if the answer is, oh, that's a tough one, we've not got a lot of budget, the answer would be LMDH. Budget-driven. Simple as that. I would also say what are your wishes in terms of customer sales? Not as if uh, LMH manufacturers can't, won't, or don't intend on selling vehicles Glickenhaus, obviously that's uh the key tenant of what they're trying to do but i think lmdh terms of lower cost lower everything involved with that compared to lmh would make it a more natural destination joshua for manufacturers with an eye to uh, sell multiple vehicles lease multiple vehicles etc ryan terpstra or an IndyCar driver is missing out on Le Mans because of the schedule conflict Ooh. with Gateway. I uh, would there's two, say there's our, two drivers. There's two, aren't there? Our French fry, for sure. Sebastian Bourdais is Three. one. Montoya. He's only doing the Indy 500 this year, so oh, uh, right. no conflict what, uh, there. And uh, what about Pietro Fittipaldi? Uh, yes, so that is the, the most glaring conflict because, yes. He's G-driver, uh, isn't he? Yeah, so we think his team, the Dale Coyne Racing team, will need to find another driver to uh, since that's an oval event and he's doing uh, three or the three or four ovals on the calendar for them. Yes, uh, they'll need to find someone there for sure. Uh, what else do we want to do in general before jumping over to fun let's, and saying farewell? That we haven't gotten to a Jacob Bame. Okay. Uh, how much of an impact will DTM have on the GT World Challenge Europe grid? Not much, I think, is the answer. Uh, uh, I'm watching as the grid grows for DTM. I'm still not massively convinced by its sustainability, I have to say. 
Uh, Jacob Bame says, obscure question of the week. What is the most common method of resurfacing on racetracks? Tarmac normally, uh, I find is good. They did try it once with Silly Putty. Didn't go well. Um, let's have a quick look. Is it still possible for a GTM entry to switch to a GT Pro entry? I think the answer, I presume that's the question is relating to Le Mans. The answer is, I'm sure if you came up with a reason to do it, the ACO would be more than happy to take your money. Uh, so the answer is yes, it is possible. It's happened before, um, even in Le Mans week, with uh, an issue affecting a team losing a driver and stepping up. So the answer is yes, uh, that would be possible. Let's have a quick look. Uh, John Wojnar, one of the leaders of the Prude, who you've, you've learned oh, what they are and I who they learned. are. I've learned now. Our uh, super listener uh, group. Resubmission here says, did either of you listen to the recent crime and sports podcast episode on Scott Tucker? What did you think? I did get maybe 10 or 15 minutes in John and then shut it off because it was pretty clear. There was a lot of just Wikipedia reading and whatnot. And having been there and kind of seen it hap start and lived through it and watched a couple of excellent, uh, one documentary style thing on Netflix and another one, American Greed, which is another docu-style series where they went super in-depth and uh, I think produced the majority of the reporting uh, of the finer aspects of all that uh, Tucker and his businesses did that were uh, criminal. Um, I didn't hear anything in that episode that led me to say, oh, I'm learning anything new or that's an interesting take I hadn't considered. Now, again, I stopped uh, not that far in just because... I wasn't hearing anything that made me say, all right, there's anything new or interesting to offer. If I'm wrong and there's more great stuff waiting, let me know, uh, and I'll spend some more time listening to it. So, uh, Jacob Boehm says, how does moving the 24 hours to August affect the ACO's plans of construction for the new pit complex? Is it still going ahead? And if so, are they still aiming to finish it before commencing the 2023 running of this race? Also, a side question, if you could add one feature to the press room in that new complex, what would it be and why would it be a fish-shaped cracker dispenser? The answer is we've heard nothing about the plans to redevelop the pit complex. And I suspect... And it is just a suspicion that that may have bitten the dust with the huge hits that finances have taken uh, over the last year or so. I wouldn't be remotely surprised if they've had to massively tone down their plans for that. But I've no confirmation of that. What would I retain as a feature of the press room? I wouldn't retain it so much as have it back. And that, my friend, would be you, Marshall Pruitt. No. Yeah, well, that's sweet. Yeah. Um, I say a lot of negative and critical things about them, though. So I'm quite <laughs> curious. I do have an interest in heading back for 23. Um, oh, you'd be welcome. Well, I might be welcome buying a ticket and sitting <laughs> across the, from the media center on the front straight. I truly, I'm genuinely curious if they will accept my uh, appli oh, uh, application. Uh, hey, look. Uh, I who knows uh, I think we are meant to go to the final category we only have one left but I can't choose it it's your by law power to do so so you have to tell us where we're going to close the show F-U-N fun is where we're going you want to pick the first couple uh, yeah let me see how many we have uh, James Counter asks other than Le Mans which is the loudest circuit you visit Ooh. Graham what's the loudest one you visit 
I don't know. I've got tinnitus now, by the way. Um, you do? Uh, and I'm d- 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 deadly serious. Tinnitus? It- what is that? I know it's. Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to go down that road because okay. it's a whole. Uh, Bahrain's very loud. Um, simply because the, the, it's the shape of the stand. Um, I think I've said something on the on the show before now about Imola. Um, if you sit in the stands at Pit Out, Imola, uh, it's extraordinarily loud. The uh, the uh, the the uh, acoustics uh, somehow just make that louder. A lot of it it, it depends on uh, exactly where you are. The the old um, press room. Uh, at Spa was catastrophically loud, single glazed uh, along the uh, the Heritage Pit Strait there, uh, absolutely ridiculously loud. Uh, Silverstone, by contrast, is almost silent in the press room. You know, I think I've said again on the show a number of times, I've completely missed the fact that cars have got out on track because you can't hear them, which I don't particularly like. But um, where else is loud? There's not that many places. Well, uh, sorry, the one, of course, I've completely missed, uh, which was from the Super Sebring event. The uh, the because you brought a noise meter with you, MP. That was just a cacophony. Was it an average of ninety eight decibels? Yeah, a week? something like that. Yeah, we we I think it climbed over a uh, hundred when Gibson engined LMP twos went by, and I think some of the. Porsche GTLM ish, but yeah, it or I'm, I'm trying to think of there. I'm sure there were some V8 powered things that were uh, crazy, but yeah, that was the wall of sound event. And yes. oh boy, I, I mean, was look, tiring. It, I'm it a was tiring. guy who loves the sound of motor racing engines. I might even have a podcast where we put out a bunch <laughs> of that stuff too. I, that was something where uh, if I were just spectating, I could probably, I'm sure I would have loved it. Having to do critical thinking and write things that weren't just gibberish and blah, 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 like, yeah, that became very hard to do. Uh, street races, often James, and I know that we don't get a lot of uh, sports car street races each year, but certain sections there when you're in or near tunnels or uh, just narrow walls where there's a lot of reverberation, that can be something where you go, wow, all right, I my eyes are crossing a little bit due to the uh, sound or the amplification or the whatever it might be. So, yeah, um, yeah, but hey, by and large, uh, barring that Sebring 2019 experience, uh, no real complaints for me. Uh, Graham, Dennis Prokniak asks, uh, if you could magically make racing constructors or engineers unlearn one thing for the benefit of better spectacle, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. Better spectacle. Uh, just just five percent of reliability. Just that. Uh, just just we are in an era now where genuinely cars just don't break. Um. It, it, it is a remarkable part of it that we are in an era where the Le Mans 24 hours is a sprint race. And I don't want a return to the comedy levels of reliability in the early days of, you know, LMP2 and the, uh, the entire history of LMP675. Uh, but actually just a little bit of surprise on reliability would be just spice it up just a little bit. They are too damn good at what they do now. Uh, the cars just don't break. And, uh, the, you know, it, it's that it's, it is that thing about 
I love to see these cars being driven at as close to 100% as they can be for as long as they can be. But I do sort of miss the flaws in the uh, in the package that used to add just a little bit of spice at you know unpredictable points in the race. Maybe it's that, just the ultimate reliability. What about you, MP? I cannot think of a better thing that is specific to endurance racing. I know that in open wheel, you often read uh, comments from fans, heck, even drivers and engineers at some point saying downforce is a devil. If we got rid of it, we'd get back to, to better racing, more fun. And, and I think that sentiment's great. But I think you're, it's a perfect thing for endurance racing. I will admit that the state of reliability in recent years has actually coincided with my lack of enjoying endurance racing to a degree that bothers me a little bit. And I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm just saying my, oh my gosh, this is amazing love for it. Can't wait wait to watch. That has decreased, uh, I think, almost in, in equal step with reliability reaching a point to where it's really no no longer a question. And this just is couched by having grown up at a time watching sports car racing where reliability was not only not a guarantee, it wasn't really a word you could use because reliability mm-hmm. wasn't found that often. Absolutely. And so what you got was high drama. And yeah, often the first place finisher, second place, maybe third overall, and maybe even in the classes, the top two or three would be the ones that had clean runs, nothing broke, no crashes or whatever to repair and recover from. But then you look at the lap count of, again, whomever finished second, third, fourth, fifth, and on back, and there's a gap. Oh, there's a gap. Not one lap, but like five, 20, 30, whatever it is. And you can, you can just tell, oh, reliability was not there. And so what you get or what you would get was a lot of disappointment, but you'd get a lot of drama. And you knew that, for the most part, very few were going to get through this 12- or 24-hour race unscathed. And so the component to that that I loved was the human one of, aha, overcoming adversity is part of the endurance racing experience. You have to almost expect it. Which teams are best prepared, have the best processes, how fast can they replace the thing that blew up or broke or whatever, and what are we going to see? Think of the end of Le Mans when Toyota had the race in the bag in 2016, right? I mean, that, now granted, that was peak drama with a lap to go, but that kind of thing where your heart just falls out your backside and you can't believe it's the possibility for those those things to happen one hour in, halfway through, you name it, and all of a sudden you have a bunch of folks fighting to recover, but also with the possibility they could have another problem. Or the team that's now leading and beating them handily could have a problem. Yeah, I don't know. I don't even know if I'd go five. If I'd go as low as 5%, Graham, I'd say 25%. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. the To the point where I've even thought maybe we should increase to the 36 hours of Daytona in Le Mans, or 48. Obviously, you're not going to do that with the same crew. We're going to need multiple reporters. We're going to need you know multiple shifts of people. But if we're talking endurance, endure, 
no manufacturer is going to do things poorly for the sake of breaking to create drama. We can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. But how do we maybe make these races longer so there is now real questions of reliability while implementing rules that say, no, you can't, you know, you're limited to doing a, you know, a test that's no longer than 30 hours. And here, you know, we want to put things in place that do make you have to endure um, and not just let everyone go and spend more money to do 50 hour tests and make sure everything's super reliable there. And then all of a sudden it's a 48 hour sprint race. Mm hmm. This is something we've lost. I don't know if we ever get it back, but for those of us who've seen the days when there were big question marks hanging over almost every entry, yeah, uh, sometimes it feels like we're just waiting to get to the end to see who won uh, because there, there's not a lot else along the way that's going to uh, stir up intrigue. Well, let's let's uh, let's uh, with uh, as we move towards the close of the show, let's look back to an earlier era. Jonathan Wesley says, with the prospect of multiple privateer entries in LMH and LMDH programs in the near future, do either of you have a favourite Porsche 956962 livery from the heyday of Group C when so many of these cars were raced? He says he particularly likes a black Blaupunkt Yost car. He thinks run only in the German Supercup races with the front wheels and a blue wheel rim replicating the blue dot of the sponsor's logo God, i'm gonna give you beautiful jonathan that, two, that's well spotted there two two or three come on give us two or three no no no. you go ahead group c's yours that's what? your side the jägermeister porsche but i thought was a stunning car the marlborough colors actually suited the porsche very well uh i thought as well um the one that came back i guess in terms of a wider uh, recollection of it because it was replicated with the special livery for the 911 RSR was the Coke livery which is that, that 956 about 84 something like that um, that was an absolute cracker big fan by the way uh, of one that's perhaps not as traditionally well liked and that was 87-ish shell livery on the cars Yeah, um, I thought that they looked absolutely fantastic <sighs> New Man, I'll throw in the New Man, Yost one. I always liked that look for sure. Uh, And this wasn't Group C. I think it was limited to uh, the German Interseries, but the uh, the Tic Tac livery. Oh, yes. That one I thought was... Well, actually, one of those cars in Tic Tac livery, I know, raced in the Group C race at Le Mans uh, some years ago. The Advan coloured car, the black and red car. There you go. Uh, that's that absolutely beautiful. And let's not forget, by the way, the one that's inspired a number of cars that have attracted more contemporary um, admiration, and that is the Winds car. Um, so there's been so, so, so many um, uh, just iconic liveries and just on the one. If we can get back to that kind of time, uh, that would be a thing indeed. What's next from your, your um, liking stupid Happy. face uh daniel Summersdale says are there any plans to get the uh the weekend sports cars logo with rocky rosie and oscar the husky made into a t-shirt by <laughs> toronto motorsports he says i would buy one uh yeah man um they can make anything so yeah uh if you want it just reach out to uh derek at toronto motorsports i'm sure he'll make one for you and if there are more of you that want them let me know and we can get more of them made we do have one or two more new logos coming. So, uh, mm-hmm. and I have a feeling there might be some folks who want one or more of those. Uh, I believe the next one coming is certainly 
uh, one that European sporty car fans would probably Ooh. dig very heavily. I don't even know if you know what it is. So, I've no um, clue. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, um, right. are Lance we about Snyder? The, are we about there? Yeah, yeah I think Snyder? Lance Snyder, you're going to get the, uh, the last question here. Uh, time for a good old-fashioned fisticuffs twist style. Says you're fighting over the broadcast debuts. MP, mm-hmm. you're in the corner of James Hinchcliffe. Graham, you're in the corner of Oliver Gavin. Who had the better debut? I expect nothing less than hissing, growling, and claws. Meow. Uh, So we're talking about who did it best first. Um, Okay. Should we tell Lance that James Hinchcliffe, who's, what, 32, 33 years old, IndyCar driver, was doing commentary back when he was, I think, almost still a teen in like 2007, 6, 7, Champ Car. Yes, when he was in the Atlantic series back then. Uh, but uh, you, you you give us the reason why your man Gavin was best. Uh, for, give us your uh, best pugilistic answer, and then I'll well, tell you why you're wrong. So, so not his first commentary, but his first live TV commentary, I believe. Um, uh, but uh, why was he the best? Less because popular his- than Piers Morgan, I hear. Lots of complaints. More than yeah. 50,000 filed. Yeah, uh, hang on a minute. This is uh, what you can hear here. That's the world's smallest violin playing for the end of his breakfast TV career. The loathsome piece of shit that he is. Um, so my apologies for anybody listening that uh, is a fan of shit, but um, but that, that's what he is. But, uh, but no, I, I, I'm. That's going to be a, an out of context twist uh, yeah, meme I'm, right there. No, I'm I'm not a not in any way, shape, or form a Piers Morgan fan. He is a person I've had dealings with in his journalistic career. Have you? Wish- Tell us. Let, let's have- just park and talk about that for a second. Tell us about that. Um, <laughs> there is something about a UK tabloid journalist that when you when they call and haven't even asked the question, you just know how awful they're going to be as an individual and a person. And he was certainly one of those. Um, he just was not a very pleasant man. And um, there is a reality here that if you're ringing to ask a genuine question, you can ask it just as equally well, politely. And uh, I can just say this, Mr. Morgan was never, ever polite. Wow. There we go. All right. So uh, tell us about Ollie Gavin. Why, why was uh, he the best? Uh, it's Ollie Gavin. Do we need to? I, mean, it's, he could, I think he could probably beat James Hinchcliffe in a fight. That's another one. Well, he, yeah, James person. is Canadian, so I mean, come on, that's just a, a, be polite, a given. Be polite. Sorry, you've hurt your fist on my face. Sorry, you've hurt your fist on my face. Sorry, you've hurt, but uh, but Ollie would be because he's an English gentleman. Uh, too polite to actually engage in the pugilism that would be required for that. Uh, look, all joking aside. I just thought he picked up the ball and ran with it. Uh, when you're when you're working in live broadcasting, you are fully aware that from time to time you will either receive or send a hospital pass. And what I mean by that is that you will either receive a cue from somebody to talk in answer to something where you've got no clue, or you will be. Uh, offering the opportunity for a co-host, a co-presenter, to offer their thoughts and receive nothing in return. I've had both those experiences, as just about everybody else. Not once did Ollie let me down, despite the fact that that was a very challenging environment. Remember, Ollie's um, 
vast majority of Ollie's racing career in the last two decades has been spelt, spent on a completely different continent and with a completely different uh, driver lineup that he was getting with the Asia Le Mans series. Um, we did have conversations. We did uh, tour the pit lane as best we possibly could within the kind of COVID protocols, but it wasn't easy to pick up. Well, let me think. So uh, well over 100 drivers, remember, um, on that field. Not once did I feel that he actually dropped the ball. I thought as a live television debut in you know back-to-back races and sessions, he did spectacularly well. And I look forward to working with him again. Unfortunately, he didn't say the same about you, but that's good to know. At least uh, there was one way of impression. That was the hospital pass, of course. Oh, Lord. um, Rocky is currently standing up attacking (laughs) something to my left, by the way. So I'm being entertained on both sides. Thanks, Rock. Uh, Well, so you're wrong, but that's okay. You knew you were before you started speaking. I understand you (laughs) want to defend your man. Um, James Hinchcliffe, who did IndyCar broadcast last year since he was not a full-time driver last year, uh, he is just a universal tool who, well, I guess that's also a potential out-of-context twist item there. Um, (laughs) Hinch (laughs) is somebody who, unlike Ollie, and this is not a criticism of Ollie, it's just it is what it is. Uh, Hinch could be dispatched to do a fashion show. He could do, he could cover a concert. He could do sporting events. He could do just about anything. He has a big and fun and engaging personality. He is immediately at ease in front of a camera talking about almost any subject. And it's that universal likability and playfulness that means he can do something serious with IndyCar while bringing fun. He brought some amazing insights to driving in some of his uh, work last season. And I was going to say no disrespect. There's a little bit of disrespect. Uh, the former drivers employed by NBC to be their kind of insider color analysts in IndyCar. It's been a long time since they drove IndyCars. The new version, the latest version uh, being one that's significantly different than what they last drove just means whatever they were to give in terms of insight would certainly be a little bit vintage. Having Hinch to speak about such things and often correct them and give the latest and greatest information about aero, tires, mechanical, you name it, really stood out as this is sharp. We've been missing this. Tony Kanon did the same thing uh, when he did a little bit of guesting as well. So subject matter expertise on point, just like Oliver Gavin. Oliver can do those things exactly. Difference being, though, why my guy wins this fight, you can take Hinch out of a motor racing setting, put a microphone in front of him, and he's going to shine there as well. So, Are you, are you saying you don't think Ollie Gavin could do red carpet? Is that what you're saying? Are you saying you, th- you think he couldn't present the Golden Globes if asked to do so? Is that what you're saying? He couldn't do a 45-minute comedic monologue. Are you really honestly saying that you don't think he could do, he could present Saturday Night Live? Are, are you saying that he couldn't actually have replaced Cronkite in his prime? You're actually, you're, you're going to have the gall and the, you, 
you do you realize he is replacing Piers Morgan tomorrow on Good Morning oh, Britain? Jesus. <laughs> He's uh, the new Royals reporter. Is that is that what Absolutely. you're telling me here? <laughs> oh my god. Yes, pro- I want to see connected. I want to see After the Crown with Oliver Gavin where he breaks <laughs> down every new episode. That's what I want to see After the no, Crown. Here's the thing. So here's the thing. So I I will tell you I have not seen Oliver Gavin naked, okay? But I do believe that he has at some point in that last 20 years had a full body tattoo of his Corvette racing driving suit. He's That's just a, there's a thing. Wow, walking there's a thing. Pumping American iron statue. Yes. And the reason you know it's the tattoo, and only Ollie will get this when he listens to it, and he will send me an offensive. He won't text. listen to this. He has better things to he, do with his time. Oh, he will. He will. Um but they've misspelled his surname on the tattoo. I, I don't even want to know. Um, <laughs> you've thrown me for a loop to close the show, uh, but I'm not in charge of closing the show. So let's take it home. Go. So thank you very much indeed, everybody, for once again joining us on the Weekend Sports Cars podcast, part of the Marshall Pruitt podcast. Uh, series and thanks again to Rocky and Rosie for keeping you entertained. Thanks for Oscar for the one hundred and eighty-five pound bill for pumping five berries out of his stomach. You idiot dog! Um, thanks to he's you, a good boy though. He's a good boy. Good he's, a, he's a very he's a very good boy. Um, uh, thanks, of course, to Cooper Tires, to the Justice Brothers, and to TorontoMotorsports.com, who will indeed do your T-shirts with the Rocky, Rosie, and Oscar um, logo if that's what you wish. Uh, I've been Greg Goodwin. He's been Marshall Pruitt. Uh, We'll be back next week. Take care.